0: When I was younger, when I thought of the command to rest on the Sabbath day, I thought, man, that sounds like a boring day, you know, one that is just empty, where we sit around and stare at walls and look up at ceilings. But after coming to a better understanding of the fourth commandment, the day is to be a full day, isn't it? But it's to be different from all the others. We're to put the ordinary things to the side and rest from them, and we're to devote ourselves to worship and to acts of necessity and mercy. Um, It's come over time to be my very favorite day of the week. I love it so much. It's a privilege to gather with you here on this Lord's Day. The sermon text today is Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. Would you please turn there, if you have not already. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. There's no Old Testament reading today. Uh, We need to focus in upon this text and give all of our time to understanding it. Let's hear now God's word at Matthew chapter 18, starting at verse 15. If your brother sins against you, Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. So far we have read God's word, now we will devote ourselves to the preaching of it, to the exposition of it. I think it should be very clear to the to the members of Emmaus Christian Fellowship as to why we have broken briefly from our study of the book of Revelation to consider again the topic of church discipline with special attention given to the issue of excommunication. We dealt with the topic of discipline within one of the sermons. Um, of the letters of written to the seven churches in the book of Revelation a number of months ago. But here we return to the topic again, and I assume it is clear to you. If it is not clear to you, I'll remind you why we are here today. Three months ago, we held a congregational meeting to, among other things, present one of our members to the church for discipline. Today, we've called for another congregational meeting with the intent of, of bringing that discipline case to a conclusion by way of excommunication. Uh, brothers and sisters, it is a very serious thing, isn't it? Excommunication is a very, very serious thing. I hope you feel the weight of it. Uh, I'm somber today, I just can't help it. Uh, you know, Stephen's passing is a sad thing, but uh, strangely weighing even more heavily upon me is this issue of excommunication. We know where Stephen is, don't we? So we have hope and, and, and a sense of joy in regard to his having gone home to be with the Lord. This issue of excommunication though is just very heavy and weighs heavily upon my heart as I trust it does upon yours as well. It is a weighty matter, one that we do not take lightly as a congregation and we believe that there is great power in the act of excommunication. When, when Christ spoke of the decision of the church to excommunicate. Listen again to his words. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Listen to those words and think about them for a moment. And he repeats himself. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. And so recognize, brothers and sisters, that when a church excommunicates one of its members according to the command of Christ... There is spiritual and heavenly power in it. Whatever we bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever we loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven, Christ tells us. Uh, That is assuming, of course, that what we have bound and loosed has been bound and loosed according to the truth of God's word and not according to the inventions of men. Do you you see what I am addressing here? Uh, There is such thing as bad cases of church discipline and excommunication done wrongly, not according to truth, and not according to the truth of God's word. I think these words of Christ here assume that things have been done in a decent and orderly manner and according to truth. The point for now is that there is great power in the act of excommunication. We must see that and not forget it. How important it is, therefore, that we understand what excommunication is, and once we have understood it, how important it is that we wield this weapon with great precision, also caution, and care. It's a very serious matter that we are addressing here today, that we will address in the congregational meeting today. Perhaps you've noticed that I've used the word we a lot in this introduction. Have you heard it? Uh, That's very intentional. uh, For it is we, the church, who have the power to excommunicate. It is not we, the elders, alone. It is not we, the elders and deacons, alone. And it is not you, the members, alone but rather we the church who have the power to excommunicate it is the whole church the officers and members together each group doing their part it is they together who have the power to excommunicate how important it is therefore that we understand what excommunication is and once we've understood it how important it is that we wield this weapon with great precision caution and care you're involved in this is what i'm saying i do trust that the elders and deacons of emmaus christian fellowship have a very good handle on this issue and understand the weightiness of the matter. And I also think that you do too. The reason for this sermon is to make sure that that is the case and to address it properly before we move forward with this first case of ours in our five and a half year existence. So what is excommunication exactly? What is it? Excommunication is the disciplinary action of a local church To remove one of its members from the membership on the basis of his or her stubborn disobedience to the clear commands of Christ or divisive distortions of the doctrines of Christ. Excommunication might take place um, in opposition to immoral and ungodly living. It could also take place in opposition to divisive teachings within the church that distort uh, the teaching of Holy Scripture. It is the end of the disciplinary process. It it, it declares that although the person may profess Christ with his or her mouth, that they have denied him with their way of life. Excommunication, therefore, puts an end to all of the benefits of Christian fellowship for the one excommunicated. It also puts an end to the obligations of the church as it pertains to the care of that person's soul. Excommunication is the word that we use to describe what Christ stated in Matthew chapter 18, verse 17, saying, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, and if he refer, refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Do you hear it there? He is saying, the end of this process must be that the person is put out, out of the church and into the world. To excommunicate... Is to put a person out of the church and into the world, for his or her unrepentant way of life has made it plain that that is where he or she belongs, and not in the church. Can we judge the person's soul or heart? Ultimately, we cannot we judge their salvation and make firm declarations about that, that so-and-so is saved or unsaved? We, we do not have that authority, but we do have the authority to say, based upon what we see, based upon your way of life, based upon all of the evidence, we, we, we see that you belong not here but there, out in the world. You are to be to us as a Gentile or tax collector. That is Jesus' way of refer- referring here to a worldly person, uh, a worldly person. Excommunication is the word that we use to describe what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5, 4-5. through To the church in Corinth, he wrote, When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, you are to deliver this man, that is this proudly and stubbornly unrepentant sinner that he had been referring to in this passage, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Uh, To deliver a man to Satan, as Paul puts it, is to put a man out of the church, which is the kingdom of God on earth, and into the realm of Satan, namely the world. God's kingdom is on earth now. It is advancing. It advances wherever the gospel is proclaimed and wherever his church is built. This is the realm that those who have faith in Christ live in. We are citizens of this world and of the kingdom of God. We have dual citizenship. But to deliver a man to Satan is to put the man out of this realm and into the realm that Satan has dominion over, namely uh, the world. Uh, Notice that The goal of excommunication is the destruction of his sinful way of life, according to Paul, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. The goal of excommunication, brothers and sisters, is still repentance in the one who is sinning. Our prayer for the excommunicated one is, Lord, save them. Bring them to repentance. May they repent, believe upon Christ, and walk according to His ways, bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. What happens if the person repents after having been excommunicated and there is authentic repentance? Is there not then an obligation upon us to reinstate them into uh, the church if that repentance has been demonstrated as being true? I think that there is because that is still the goal, even of excommunication, that the flesh might be destroyed, that sinful way of life might be destroyed and and, and the soul saved on the day of the Lord. Excommunication is what the church must do. Listen to this, brothers and sisters. Excommunication is what the church must do if she is to obey the commands of Scripture. If we want to be a church that is true to Christ... If we want to be a church that is true to the teaching of Scripture, this is something we must do. Christ clearly commanded that we put out from our midst an unrepentant sinner. Paul also says so. He states things most strongly in 1 Corinthians 5. I've already made reference to a particular part of this passage. But listen to the way that this chapter, 1 Corinthians 5, concludes. Paul concludes with these words, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters since then you would need to go out of the world Uh, but now I am writing to you by way of clarification I'm not saying don't associate with non-believers who are immoral but, but, but now I am writing to you do not associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater reveler drunkard or swindler not even to eat with such a one I think that has a most direct reference to the Lord's Supper but also has to do with tight-knit and uh, very intimate relationships centered around fellowship over food. Uh, For what have I to do, Paul says, with judging outsiders? What business is that uh, of mine to judge outsiders? Is it not those inside the church who you are to judge? We don't judge, right? I mean, we're we're not supposed to ever judge, are we? Uh, Judge not lest you be judged, The scriptures say. Well, we must interpret, I think, that uh, commandment, judge not lest you be judged, very carefully, and it cannot contradict what Paul says here, because here Paul says, you are to judge. You are to judge. You're to judge concerning these things. A concerning way of life, concerning behavior within the church. And if there is one who is living an immoral lifestyle, who claims to be a Christian, who is a part of your fellowship, eating the Lord's Supper with you, if he does not repent of that after being confronted in a proper and orderly way, he is to be put out. You are to judge. To f- refuse to judge in this way is to, is to live as a church in a way that is disobedient to the command of Christ. Do you see that? So this is something that we, that we must do. We must do this if we hope to be a biblical and God-honoring church. God judges those outside, Paul says, and he concludes with these words. Listen to it. Purge the evil person from among you. Purge the evil person from among you. The phrase, purge the evil person from among you, is a very interesting one. Uh, It is clearly an allusion to many Old Testament passages that warned Old Covenant Israel to get rid of the sinner, lest sin spread amongst the people of God. Purge the evil from among your midst, or purge the evil from Israel, is a phrase that is found all over the New Testament. For example, in Deuteronomy 13.5, 17.7, 17.12, 21.2, 22.21, 2, and 22.24. 22, you got all those numbers, the manuscripts online. If you want to go look them up for yourself. Judges twenty thirteen also has this phrase: um, "How was Old Covenant nationalistic Israel to purge the evil person from their midst? How were they to do it? Not by excommunication, but by execution." Go look at those texts. They were to execute these who were spreading evil amongst the nation of Israel, they were to use capital punishment. When when Paul uses the phrase, purge the evil person from among you, to sum up what he has to say about excommunication, the clear implication is that what execution was to Old Covenant national and fleshly Israel, excommunication is to the new covenant multi ethnic and spiritual Israel, that is to say, the Church. The nation of Israel was to be vigilant in their pursuit and promotion of holiness. The most potent weapon in their fight against lawlessness was the sword, for they were a nation, weren't they? The church is also to pursue holiness. So too is the church to purge the evil person from among her. But her weapon, listen carefully to this, her weapon is not the sword, but it is rather the word and the spirit. She does not have the power to execute, but rather to what? To excommunicate. That is a spiritual act, not a physical act. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. That is the way that Paul speaks in 2 Corinthians 10, 3-4. And so excommunication is clearly not a physical weapon. It should not have an effect upon a man or a woman's physical existence. But it is a spiritual one. It is a spiritual weapon. What we bind on earth is bound in heaven. That is what Christ says. There's spiritual power in the act of excommunication when we agree with one another on earth in Christ's name. Here is the obvious principle communicated in each of these passages that seems to be ignored in so many churches today. Christ's church is clearly to pursue holiness. Holiness you see that implied clearly in all of these passages that have to do with excommunication? Christ's church is to pursue holiness. We are to pursue holiness individually, but also corporately. The object of the church, the objective of the church should not be to grow big, but to grow in a way that is holy and true according to the scriptures. And if she grows big and holy and true, then praise be to God. But growing big should not be our goal. We should seek to grow in a way that is holy and true according to God's word. These are two goals that are very different from one another. Uh, They produce very different kinds of churches if you have one goal or the other. And what I am saying, brothers and sisters, is that holiness matters. If it were so, if it weren't so, then how could Paul use such strong language saying, purge the evil person from among you? He commands it. It is true, brothers and sisters, that we are saved by grace. Can you say amen to that? It is true that God has poured out His love upon us in Christ Jesus, and it is true that we are not saved by the keeping of God's law, but through faith in Christ alone. These are precious truths that we must remember and never forget. But we also must remember that we have been redeemed not to serve self, but to serve Christ. We are slaves, not to sin any longer, but to Christ. The law no longer stands over Mm -hmm. us to condemn us, for Christ has obeyed the law for us. But that does not mean that we are lawless. No, instead God's law is to be followed by Christians. We are to keep it, not for salvation, but to the glory of God and for our good. What did Christ say in John 14, 15? If you love me, you will keep my Commandments. In other words, don't bother saying you love me if you have no concern to keep my commandments. Christianity is not legalistic, but neither is it lawless. Neither is it lawless. I want you just to listen to the way that the new covenant, which is the covenant we are in with Christ now, after Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, I want you to listen to the way the promise of the new covenant is articulated from Jeremiah chapter 31. This is so familiar to you. It's such an important Old Testament text. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. He's contrasting the old and new covenants with one another. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will, listen to this, I I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. This is the new covenant. It is the covenant of grace. It has nothing to do with our merits. By the grace of God alone that we are saved. We're not saved by keeping the law. But what do you notice about this new covenant? One of the distinguishing characteristics of this new covenant is that the law of God is engraven upon our hearts. What law do you think Jeremiah's audience would have thought of when they heard this passage read, recited for the first time? The Ten Commandments. The Old Testament law, at least the moral aspects of it for sure, It's a topic for another time. But one of the defining characteristics of the new covenant is that law is not done away with, as if we are to live a lawless life now, that we have been saved by grace and washed in, in the blood of Christ and the love of God has been poured out upon us. It doesn't lead to lawlessness, but rather instead through regeneration, through the work of the Holy Spirit upon our hearts, we have that same law, the law that was present in the old covenant written upon our hearts. What should then be the expectation? Well, if someone has true faith in Christ, if they are indeed a part of the new covenant, the covenant of grace, if indeed they have been redeemed and washed and regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit, then they are going to live out that law from the heart. We are not lawless, friends. We are not legalists. We do not add to God's law in any way. We do not seek to earn righteousness with God by the keeping of God's law, but we are not lawless. The clear implication from all of these church discipline passages, is that the church is to be a disciplined organization, one that has standards for entrance, one that is active in the maintenance of its membership, and one that has the right of excommunication should those standards be violated in an unrepentant way. Uh, The standards, mind you, and this is so important, are not man's standards. We are not free to make up the standards, but they are God's standards, Christ's standards. Uh, We are to receive people into the membership of the church who have faith in Christ and who are living in a way that is consistent with that profession of faith. The Christian life is to be marked by repentance. The Christian life is to be lived in obedience to God's law for it has been written on the Christian's heart. The Christian is to pursue holiness then in a disciplined way. Matthew 18, the whole chapter is about discipline. It's about the process by which the church pursues holiness holiness and there is a clear progression to it we've talked about this progression before haven't we there is to be self-discipline after that there is to be mutual discipline after that church discipline and then lastly excommunication if a church is committed to carrying out this process according to the way of christ it will go a very long way to advance her fight against sin i want you to notice first of all that christians are to constantly discipline themselves that's the thing that's often missed here uh, because it is not listed as one of the steps in the discipline process here in Matthew eighteen fifteen and onward, but the context reveals it as so. Here I'm referring to the individual Christian's commitment to examining themselves according to the word, this practice of confessing particular sins and turning from them. Uh, this is to happen in the lives of individuals, moment by moment, day by day, Lord's day to Lord's day. It's one of the reasons that we pause each Sunday to give time for the confession of sin because we are to be a people who are self-disciplined, right? We discipline ourselves so that no one ever has to get involved. We just deal with our business. We repent of our sins. I want you to look at the context here back up in verse 7 of Matthew chapter 18. Listen to what Jesus says. 18, 7 through 9. The the language is very extreme and it is exaggerated. Does Christ really want you to cut off your hand or pluck out your eye? No, he does not. Uh, That is not the point of the text here. The language is exaggerated, though, in order to make the point that sin is not to be messed with, but rather we are to take it very seriously and we are to deal with it effectively we're to do everything in our power to rid it from our uh, lives we are to identify sin once we have identified it we are to do whatever we need to do to overcome it i would suggest that self-mutilation is not really the goal here of course but rather that we would go to rather extreme measures to get rid of the sin that is in our lives do you do that brothers and sisters that's my question for you Do you take sin seriously? Are you aware of your sin? Have you read God's word and asked the Spirit to convict you of sin? And once you've been made aware of it, have you really gone to work to overcome that particular sin in your life? Either you're convicted right now or you're ignoring me. I can't tell which one it is. But I would encourage you to think deeply upon these things. Right? Uh, To think deeply upon these things don't mess with sin resolve to turn from it pray that the lord give you victory go to the word for god word of god for help go to your brothers and sisters for help say i'm struggling would you help me in this matter go to your pastors for help remove the source of temptation if possible do everything in your power and in full dependence upon christ to fight against that sin whatever it is that is what christ is calling you to do here in this passage the language is exaggerated in order to get your attention concerning the seriousness of the matter. Don't play with sin. Turn from every sin quickly and fully. Examine your thoughts. Examine your words. Examine your deeds against the backdrop of God's law and repent whenever you are found to be in violation of it. Christians are to constantly discipline themselves then. If everyone did this, there would never, ever, ever be church discipline or excommunication. Do you realize that? if we would just take the time to discipline ourselves in the way that Christ has called us to, but sometimes mutual discipline is required. That is what Christ describes in Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Here, contained in this principle, are the first and second stages of what we, call, what we have called a church discipline. Uh, notice that mutual discipline is to happen in two stages. First, if a brother or sister sins against you and you know about it, you are to go to them alone, to them uh, and tell them their fault. Uh, Brother, you have sinned against me, you have offended me with your words. Or sister, you are sinning and it is bringing shame to the name of Christ. I know about it and here I am to talk to you face to face concerning the issue. Dear friend, you are sinning and it will lead to your destruction if you do not turn. This is the kind of face-to-face meeting that needs to take place. First, I hope this is happening at Emmaus Christian Fellowship all the time because you love one another. I hope that you are constantly growing closer to one another, uh, loving one another, caring for one another, and when there is some sin that you are uh, courageous enough and indeed loving enough to go and to confront your brother or sister in Christ, concerning that sin. Do not let it go, but address the issue. If they do not listen, then you are to take two, or two others along with, one or two others along with you. Uh, the reasons for this should be obvious. One, the thought of gathering one or two others to confront the unrepentant one should make you pause to ask the question, is this person really sinning or, I am, or am I just being petty? you hear what I'm saying there? Um, is this really sin? Or am I just being petty about the issue? Because when you take one or two more with you, now all of a sudden it's not just that individual who's being inspected, but who else? You're, you're being inspected. You're asking others to come and to look at the situation and, and, and to, to help discern what it is that is really going on here. I think that is one of the reasons why we're to take others with us. But two, if the person is indeed in sin, that charge needs to be established by more than one witness. The principle is stated in Deuteronomy 17, 6. On the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. So there is the principle that whenever there is a charge made, however big or small it may be, uh, it needs to be made on the evidence of more than one a witness, It was true in civil cases involving capital punishment in Israel and it is, it is true concerning discipline within the church. Charges must be established by the evidence of two or three people. Witnesses must be called. This is mutual discipline. First, it is to happen one to one. Second, if there is no repentance, one or two others are to be brought along to serve as witnesses. The standard by which we judge is God's word, not the traditions of men. The goal is repentance. The motivation is love for God and Christ and His church and also love for the one who has been caught up in some particular sin. That is what should motivate us. And if mutual discipline fails, church discipline is required. This would be the the third step of church discipline. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, Christ says. And when Christ said, tell it to the church... He was anticipating the church that would be born after his death and resurrection and after Pentecost. The book of Acts tells us all about the founding of the church, doesn't it? It tells us that story. The letters of Paul instruct us concerning what the church is. Clearly, Jesus had in mind local congregations made up of officers and members. That is, made up of elders and deacons along with congregants. If the mutual discipline does not bring about repentance, the matter must be brought to the church. It is natural for the matter to be brought first to the elders of the church, of course, since they are tasked with leadership and shepherding of the flock of God, but they are to bring the matter to the body of Christ. The body of Christ, if indeed it is found that this one is stubbornly unrepentant, living in a way contrary to the word of God. The matter is to be told to the whole church. In other words... It's not just the elders who are to deal with this stuff. Not just some within the church, maybe a small select group, but the whole church. And the church, the whole thing, having heard the matter, is then to call the unrepentant one to repentance with one voice. That is what we most uh, technically call church discipline. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, here we are told that we are to let him be to us, as a Gentile and tax collector, Matthew 18, 17. This is what we call excommunication. And so I want you to see, brothers and sisters, how serious the church is to be in its quest for purity. We're to be willing to even put out those who have professed faith in Christ, who have joined us. We're to be willing to put them out if indeed they will not live a life marked by repentance and a way keeping with their profession of faith. None of us are perfect We would all admit that, right? If perfection were the standard for coming into the church and remaining in the church, there would be no church. There wouldn't even be pastors. I wouldn't even be able to stand here and preach to myself if perfection were the standard for coming in or remaining in Christ's church. But the church is to be distinct from the world, it is to be distinct. The church is the assembly of the redeemed. The church is the bride of Christ. The church is the house of God, the temple of the Holy Spirit. The church is to be marked by holiness. The church is to be made up of those who have faith in Christ. And true faith produces obedience. True faith involves repentance. Peter said it this way, You, church, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak evil against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. What is Peter saying? You are a distinct people, called out of the world, now live like it. Live like it. No one is perfect here. But if you are a member of Emmaus, that means that you have professed faith in Christ and it is expected that you will indeed walk with Christ in a way that is consistent with your profession of faith. If you will not, then it is only right that we excommunicate in obedience to the Scriptures. If there is a stubborn, determined, Refusal to repent of obvious sin, then it is only right that we excommunicate in obedience to the scriptures. What I've done here is I've outlined the process of discipline again for you. This is nothing new, is it? It's not new, but it's important to be clear on these things. The church is to be a disciplined organization. If self discipline fails, there must be mutual discipline. If mutual discipline fails, there must be church discipline. If church discipline fails, there is another option except to excommunicate. We might also think of these things in stages, and that is how I presented it in the past stage one, two, three, and four. Uh, you're familiar with those categories. I would like to briefly draw your attention to some of the implications of, the te- of texts like Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5 before we conclude. And here is what I mean by implications. I mean that though Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5 do not explicitly state these principles, these principles must be so, given what is clearly stated by Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5. Do you get what I'm saying here? There are strong implications that we can draw out of these texts and others like them. First of all, these passages imply That the church is a local assembly made up of people who have professed faith in Christ and who have willingly joined that thing. Right? Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5 command us to put a person out of the congregation if they fail to live out the Christian faith. But you cannot possibly put a person out of something that they have not willingly joined. This is common sense, isn't it? It would be strange, I think, for you to receive a letter in the mail informing you that you have been kicked out of a club that you never joined. You would read that letter, you would say, what is is going on here? I didn't even know this club existed. I wasn't a part of it, but you're kicking me out of it. I think, actually, this is a problem for our Pado baptist friends who make their children to be a part of the church at birth, though they did not willingly join it, obviously. It is also a problem for churches that are closely associated with uh, the, the, the culture or, or the state, they're, they're what I'd call cultural churches. So here they are, they're doing things in such a way where it, it's, just, it's just so easy for the world to come in and there they are now all of a sudden uh, a part of this church but they never really, they never really joined. We, um, we, we say no, the, the church is a local assembly made up of people who have professed faith in Christ and who have willingly and knowingly joined that thing. Uh, similarly, uh, these passages also imply the need for local church membership. It is so ins- essential that we have uh, membership. Uh, there must be some way for local churches to identify who it is that belongs to them. There has to be some way. Who is a part of them? Who are the pastors responsible for? Who is subject to the discipline process that we have Uh, that we have outlined above from Matthew 18. Uh, For how could a church ever exercise church discipline, much less excommunication, without first knowing who its members are? How could we do it? I can't even imagine how that process would work. If it is true that you can only be put out of something that you have come into, then there must be a way to come in. This is what we call membership. It is the process by which those who profess faith in Christ join themselves to local congregations. The membership process, whatever it looks like, must be clear, it must be consistent, it must be deeply biblical, but it must exist. A local church needs to know who it is that is joining them. Are they Christian? That would be a good question to, 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 to ask, right? Are they Christian? Do they understand and believe the gospel? Are they now living in a way that is consistent with their profession of faith? In other words, do they make a credible profession of faith? Uh, There is no way to know for sure, but we must try to receive true Christians into the church. I think it would be very awkward to carelessly receive members only only to have to immediately enact discipline. Wouldn't that be awkward? Yeah, we're receiving so and so into the church today, and then the next day you find out they're living in unrepentant sin. And uh, now, now we have the responsibility to do what Christ said here in Matthew chapter 18. Also, the person joining needs to know what they are joining. They must ask, What are the beliefs of this church? What are the expectations? And of course, the belief and the expectations of the church must not be unique from church to church. They must not be the inventions of men, but they must be biblical. The local church is obligated to teach and defend God's word, not their own. The local church is obligated to encourage a biblical way of life amongst its members. The pastor's work is ministerial, therefore. The pastor is to serve Christ. He is to uphold God's word within the church. Uh, We do not have the freedom to invent doctrines or to make our own laws. You do understand that. We don't have that freedom. That is not our task. Our task is to serve Christ to uphold and teach that which has already been written. But the one joining the church must know these things. They must know what they are joining themselves to. They must join willingly and knowingly with understanding. There are a lot of educators in my family, my wife being one of them, and from time to time she'll tell me about a student who's been expelled from the school. Uh, but what happened before that child was expelled? What obvious things happened before that child was expelled? Starting with, first of all, this. They applied to that school and they joined, didn't they? And in that process, the school learned something about them, but they learned something about that school. The expectations were clearly presented to that child. On the first day of school, you know how it goes. The teacher goes over the rules first. And it's only after a constant disobedience and willful rebellion against those rules that you ever get to the point of expulsion. Why is this such common sense in worldly institutions and yet the church seems to be utterly clueless about these things? I don't know. Every institution on planet Earth works in this way, but the church says, no, we wish to be much more casual with our way of doing a church. Churches without formal membership are destined to be disorderly churches. They cannot excommunicate in obedience to the command of Christ, for no one has ever joined the thing. People attend these churches. Listen carefully. People attend these churches. They do not join them. I think you can see the difference between the two things. Uh, Friends, you do not go to church. You understand that right. You are the church. There is a big difference between the two. You are members of the body of Christ. The pastors of these churches without membership are destined to become not pastors but only preachers. That's what they are. People will come to listen to them, but those people do not expect to be shepherded by them. For they have not become a part of anything. They only attend something. Actually, I would argue that that most of the churches who say we don't believe in formal membership, and there are a lot of them today, I would actually argue that most of these churches say we don't believe in formal membership really do have a membership process. They do. They just don't know it. And the fact that they are offended by what I just said proves it. Proves it. Because they would respond to what I just said here with these words. We do pastor. We're not just preachers. We care for our people. We do pastor them, they would say. We do more than preach. We shepherd the flock. And I would respond this way saying, good I'm glad that you do, but the fact that you say that you do proves that you have some way of determining who is with you and who is not. You do then have a membership process, don't you? But I would argue that your membership process is secret. It exists within the minds of the pastors and some of the members. No one agrees upon what exactly it is, but everyone agrees that at some point a person transitions from being a visitor to a member of that church. At some point that happens. Where that line is is unclear, but there has to be a line. Is it when a person fills out a communication card for the third time? Maybe that is it. Is it when they have come for a whole year? Is it when they begin to give? Who knows? What I do know is that a church that handles membership in this way will be disorderly and will rarely, if ever, exercise discipline. How could they? Because the careless way in which members are brought in makes it nearly impossible to put them out with any sort of authority at all. The point that I really am trying to make here though that I want to emphasize before moving on is that local churches must have a way to answer the question who is a part of us? That process must be clear. It must be consistent. It must be deeply biblical. The standards for membership in the local church must be exactly what the standards set forth in the scriptures are. Not less and definitely not more. Faith in Christ is required. Baptism is required. Living in a way consistent with your profession of faith is required. The membership process, whatever it looks like, is there to make sure these things are so in the life of the applicant. The process is also there so that the applicant has an opportunity to really get to know the church, to understand its doctrine and its government. I'm being tedious this morning, aren't I? Um, It's because I think this principle here is going to be very important for us when it comes to maintaining what we have established over the last five and a half years. It's very important that we have a robust membership process, that we bring people in well, so that we can then be obedient to Christ on the other end of things. God forbid we ever have to again but we have to first bring people in well if we are to be faithful to do what Christ has said at the end of the discipline process as outlined here in Matthew 18. Thirdly, these passages imply that local churches should respect one another in discipline cases. And here's what I mean by respect. I mean that if a person comes to them and it is discovered that they are under discipline or have even been excommunicated from another church, That new church that that person has gone to is obligated to either uphold the decision of the original church straight away or to investigate the discipline case themselves if they feel there is reason to do so. I would consider both actions to be respectful actions, wouldn't you? To say to the one under discipline you are not welcome here, repent of your sin, go back to your church and make things right with them before moving on from it, would obviously be respectful of the original congregation's authority, authority that has been given to them by Christ, mind you. But if it seems to the new church, as if discipline was not done properly, maybe, at the original church, it would be respectful for the new church to investigate the matter. It would be right for them to say to the original church, so-and-so has come to us from you, And he says that you have handled discipline badly. And out of respect for you, pastor, and out of respect for your church, we are coming to you to investigate the, the claim. May we speak to those who have witnessed the matter. There must be witnesses, right? If this has reached the point of excommunication or church discipline, there must be witnesses. May we speak to them? It may be that after investigating the matter, they uphold the decision or oppose it. But if they oppose it, they should really oppose it and do so with knowledge. They should make their decision, having thoroughly investigated the matter. But to receive a person in who is under discipline or who has been excommunicated from another local church without any real consideration given to the decision of the original church is a most disrespectful thing, don't you think? We will never do that. Our, obligation, our, our, our intention is not to grow our church as big as possible. Therefore, we will take anybody who happens to enter the doors. But rather... We are concerned to also maintain the purity of this church and to give respect to other local congregations who are trying to do the same. Um, I fear for churches that receive people like this in, in an undiscerning and naive way. They have disrespected the other church. They have actually not shown love to that person. That person needs something else besides just a warm embrace. They might need Uh, rebuke, and they have also forgotten that a little leaven leavens the whole lump, 1 Corinthians 5.16. They're bringing into their own congregation a, a major problem. That unrepentant sinner will have his negative effect upon them in due time. The cancer then is now theirs to deal with. Fourthly, these passages imply that both law and gospel are to be active within Christ's church. Uh, the good news, the, the gospel is that Christ has died for us and that we are forgiven of all our sins by His grace alone and through faith alone. Uh, nothing we can do can contribute to our salvation in any way. We, we, we confess that wholeheartedly. We are only in Christ because of His love and mercy. That is the gospel, but that does not mean that the Christian life is law, a lawless one. For God's law has been written on our hearts if we have truly been regenerated. We have been freed from sin and are now slaves of Christ if we love Him, we will keep His commandments. Therefore, anyone who says, I love Christ, while actively sinning, is in, uh, is in contradiction, is in a state of contradiction. Fifthly and lastly, these passages imply that the church is to be filled to the brim and overflowing with love and forgiveness. It is strongly implied here and it should not be missed. There has been so much talk about discipline in this sermon, confrontation and even excommunication. These are negative things when you consider them by themselves. But I want you to look and to see what is there behind all of this. What motivates us to do it? Why would we even think about following the process that Christ and His apostles have set forth? Is it not our love for God and Christ that compels us? Is it not our love for the church which is the bride of Christ. And are, not, are we not moved by our love for one another also? Why would we possibly take the time and invest the energy into all of this were it not so that we love one another deeply? I want you to trust me on this one. There are easier ways to do church than this. There are easier ways to do church. I understand why people are tempted to go to a church rather than be a part of one. I get that. It's easy. To attend something rather than join something. I know why pastors stop being pastors and become only preachers instead. Preaching is kind of enjoyable. I mean, I, I do work hard at writing sermons each week. But it, it's kind of easy to stand up here and preach to you. It's clean. It's even kind of glorious, you know? To stand up in front of a group of people and have them listen to you. It can be kind of a glorious thing. Um, but to pastor it is hard. Sometimes it's very messy. Dealing with these things can be very difficult. So why do it? It must be because we love God, we love Christ, we love His church, and we love one another. If we are going to confront sin in others, we must be moved to do so by love, friends. If we're not going to be moved to do all of this by love, then we had probably better just not do it at all. It has to be love that motivates us. And and we must stand ready to forgive also. The hope in all of this, from beginning to end and even after excommunication, is what? The hope is that the person would repent. And if they repent, what is the implication for us? We must be ready to forgive from the heart. In fact, we must have already forgiven from the heart so that when the person repents, we say... Brother or sister, we see that your repentance is true. Let us begin the process of restoration because that has been the goal from beginning to end. I want you just to note this, that Peter, Peter understood this implication. Christ did not say it directly, but after Peter heard Jesus' teaching on the discipline process, look at the question that Peter asked in 1821. Uh, Lord, now that you have said all of this, I have a question for you. So how often will my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? What was this question? I I get what's implied here, Lord, that we're to confront with the hope of repentance and 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 the process that process of repentance restoration. I I get it. And Peter goes, "How many times do I got to do that? You know, how many times?" And he was really proud of himself when he said, "As many as seven times—that would seem very gracious, you know. He sinned against me once and repented in restoration twice, and that—that pro- that would seem very generous." Jesus said to him, "I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times." Matthew eighteen twenty-one through twenty-two. And then after that, we have the parable of the unforgiving servant, which I think is one of the most powerful parables in the New Testament of Christ's parables. I won't go over it now because we're already long. But man, do you think Peter got the implication that everything we do here has to be motivated by love and out of a desire to extend forgiveness to the one who has fallen into sin? We are seeking restoration from beginning to end and even after excommunication, we are seeking and praying for restoration. That's what we are praying for. How important it is that we be filled to the brim and overflowing with love and forgiveness. We may do church discipline, but we will not do it well if we are not moved by love, standing ready to forgive, should the one who has sinned come to repentance. Let us pray. Father in heaven, help us in these things. This world is filled with darkness and troubles for your people. There is temptation all around. We struggle in our fight against sin. But Lord, do help us to fight well, individually and also corporately. Lord, I do pray for this thing, that our congregation would be overflowing with love and with the desire to forgive. May that be so. And that being so, may we also be Willing to follow your word in all that we think, say, and do here in this place. Lord, it would not be our way if we had our way. But we are here as servants of yours, Lord, and so we ask you to help us to follow you in all of these matters. These things we pray in the name of Jesus Christ and all of God's people say, Amen.